Welcome to In the Newsroom, a podcast by the East Oregonian Hermiston Herald. Uh, I am editor Andrew Cutler, and today we have Alex Castle, a reporter for the East Oregonian, and Kathy Ainey, another reporter for the East Oregonian. And joining us, uh, first time appearance here on In the Newsroom is the ba- editor of the Baker City Herald, uh, Jason Jacoby. Jason, w- welcome to In the Newsroom. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, we wanted to have a conversation today to talk about the lawsuit that's currently underway in Baker County. Uh, Ten churches, 21 individuals that have sued the state saying Oregon Governor Kate Brown's stay-at-home orders uh, violate their freedom to worship. And so, Jason, why don't you start us off by kind of uh, telling us a little bit the backstory on the on the lawsuit and kind of where we are as of today. Sure. So the lawsuit was filed on May 6th in Baker County Circuit Court. And essentially, there were two main reasons for that, according to the plaintiff's attorneys. First, the lead plaintiff is the Elkhorn Baptist Church in Baker City. Uh, was one of the first churches uh, that got into contact with the Pacific Justice Institute in Salem. Uh, the lead attorney is Ray Hackey, and he's a, a attorney for that organization, which represents plaintiffs in religious liberty cases. The other main factor was that at the time the lawsuit was filed, Baker County still had no confirmed cases of COVID-19. As of today, we have one confirmed case, no hospitalizations, uh, that person's recovering at home. So those two factors uh, motivated the plaintiffs to file the lawsuit in, in Baker County. The the initial, the, the lawsuit that was filed initially deals a lot with constitutional issues, particularly the Oregon Constitution, dealing with religious uh, freedom. And one of the main issues that the plaintiffs brought up in the lawsuit was an article in the Oregon Constitution that voters added by a ballot measure in 2012. And that article deals with the governor's authority to declare catastrophic disasters. And that article limits the duration of catastrophic disasters to 30 days, unless three-fifths majorities of both houses of the legislature vote to extend it. But although that was the initial focus of the lawsuit, the issues that are uh, really defining the case at this point are actually two state statutes. The reason that the constitutional uh, article, which is Article 10A, is no longer really in play is that the governor has never invoked her authority under the Constitution to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. All of her emergency orders and executive orders since the early March have been under these two state statutes, and those are Chapter 401 in chapter 433. And her initial emergency declaration on March 8th was under chapter 401, which is a general emergency statute. And the key to that statute is that it has no time limitations. And that's the reason that the governor has been able to extend the emergency declaration twice, most recently, through uh, at least July 6th. The other statute 
433 deals specifically with public health emergency. And the governor has invoked chapter 433 in several of the executive orders that she has issued since March 8th. And these are the, the orders that have restricted business operations and the size of gatherings and, and those sorts of things. The plaintiffs argue that because the governor invoked chapter 433, she is subject to the time limitations in that statute, which are 14 days with the option to extend it one time. So a total of 28 days. The legislature is not involved in that statute at all. It's solely under the governor's authority whether to extend the public health emergency up to 28 days. The governor's attorneys, on the other hand, argue that those two statutes are not in conflict, but that they supplement each other. In other words, because the governor initially invoked her emergency order under Chapter 401, which has no time limitations, she is not subject to the 28-day limit under Chapter 433. And that's essentially the, the issue that is still being debated now. Judge Matt Shirtcliffe from Baker County Circuit Court agreed with the plaintiffs that the governor is subject to the 28-day limit. And that's why he granted the plaintiffs a preliminary injunction on May 18th. The governor's attorneys immediately appealed that. And later that day, May 18th, the Oregon Supreme Court issued a stay that prevented that preliminary injunction from taking effect. What that means basically is that the governor's executive orders continued to be enforceable as they are today. Most recently, last week, the on Saturday, uh, May 23rd, the Supreme Court issued what's called a alternative writ of mandamus. And basically that gives Judge Shirtcliffe a couple of options. He can either decide to vacate his preliminary injunction, or he can submit a written opinion as to why he believes that preliminary injunction should be reinstated. His other option, his third option is to do nothing at all in which case the Supreme Court would accept written briefings from both sides' attorneys, again, related to the preliminary injunction. None of this has anything to do with the lawsuit itself. Uh, presumably, regardless of whether the preliminary injunction is reinstated, the lawsuit could continue and potentially go to trial in Baker County Circuit Court. And the deadline for the judge to uh, respond to the Supreme Court is, is 5 p.m. today, Tuesday, May 26th. So, so that's what, so that's, so that's kind of so where we stand, where right, stand now. right now. Right. The papers of the EO Media Group have spent a lot of uh, time looking into this story and reporting on it. and. Uh, you know, Alex and Kathy, both of you had a story over the weekend, shared the byline called The Constitutional Quandary, where you interviewed uh, some local churches here in Umatilla County and one of the plaintiffs actually in the case. And Kathy, you got to talk to her. Uh, but 
at this point, you know, let's talk about, I mean, there's a lot of interest in this. Everybody is eager to see how this plays out. So, you know, w- what did you find out when you, when you interviewed and talked to some of the pastors and, and some of the plaintiffs and kind of where do you guys see this going? Well, um, yeah, I was, I'm really interested in this issue. And, um, I think one thing stood out to me. I was reading the, I think it was the Oregonian and, uh, there were quotes from each of the attorneys on both sides of this lawsuit. And, uh, it was sort of the case in a nutshell, the, the beliefs and the feelings behind it. And, uh, I think it was Ray Hackey, the attorney for the churches, um, said, you know, if we're risking our lives to go to church, if we survive, great. If we die, then we're going to heaven. And, if we want to take that risk, then it's on us. And the attorney for the, the governor said, um, well, but when behavior injures others, it's not just a matter of individual choice. It's instead, it's a threat to public health. And so kind of going into the story with that in mind. And um, I know that I um, live pretty near Grecian Heights Park in Pendleton and uh I often walk my dog in that park and there's a little church called Calvary Chapel right there. And, um, it's the parking lot has been empty, you know, for weeks. And two Sundays ago, I saw a dozen cars in the parking lot and wondered about that. It was, I don't know exactly what the date was, but it was right around when churches were able to start meeting in small groups if they wanted. And so I tried to reach that pastor uh, Barrett Brown haven't been able to try his cell phone and his church phone. And so instead I went online and, and saw a video of him talking to his church about this very issue. And I found that to be uh, kind of fascinating and kind of a window into his mind. And basically he told his congregation that he thought, I mean, he was worried about, you know, the health of the public, but... Um, he thought that this mandate was both unbiblical and unconstitutional. And um, after a lot of prayer, the church leaders had decided to hold services again. And uh, he talked a lot about that churches have been deemed, in his words, as unessential, and that God really deems churches as essential, that uh, uh, basically the law is, is requiring them to choose between continuing to follow God's word and, and not that God wants them to do fellowship and break bread together and pray and worship together. And since this looks like it's going to be going on on kind of a long-term basis, um, that he felt that the church needed to take a stand and obey God instead of man. Is how he put it. So it, it was very interesting too. I did talk to some other pastors also, and they were all three of them were quite different in their stance. One was the pastor of uh, New Hope in Hermiston, a very large church, and he they have you know done virtual services and managed to have fellowship um, virtually. He's now encouraging small groups to get together and even watch the uh, online service together so they can maintain fellowship. And um, then the other pastor I talked to, 
Um, his name is Aaron Swenson. He's from the Cornerstone Church here in Pendleton. And uh, he'd really been struggling. You know, he could see, he basically said, you know, he didn't really want to have a virus um, uh, raging and you know, spreading a virus isn't a godly thing. Um, but neither is not meeting. So he was kind of in the middle, really torn. And they have decided to go back um, with some tweaks to their services. Instead of their one service with 100 people, they're going to have multiple services with not more than 25. In fact, they took the extra chairs out. And um, so anyway, it was, it was really fascinating. Yeah, and I, I had a chance to catch up with uh, Ray DeLoe, a minister for the Hepner Christian Church over in Morrow County. And, you know, I think one of the really interesting pieces of, of this story and this issue, uh, from my perspective, has been just the the different layers of kind of who is who has the authority to rule uh, uh, on this order and who has this jurisdiction over the churches because it, it – I had first heard of it being kind of a local issue over in Morrow County about three, four weeks ago when they were first drafting their plans to reopen front, uh, and, and get into the first phase that the state had laid out. And the the commissioners over in Morrow County said that they were hearing from pushback from churches that really wanted some type of explicit guidance and permission in their reopening plans. And Morrow County, probably sensing some of what was on the horizon, they said that they were not going to have anything explicitly referencing churches because they didn't feel that they had the authority, one, to to step in there, but also they wanted this to play out at the state and federal level, um, which we're, we're seeing also, by the way, not just here in, in Oregon, but th- this is happening all across the country right now in the Fifth and si- Sixth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals uh, based in New Orleans and Cincinnati, uh, respectively. They've uh, kind of stepped in in favor of churches. We're seeing in Chicago and San Francisco where uh, we're having opposite rulings. So it seems like this could very well go to the highest level of the courts, and that may be where we're heading. But still at the local level, and uh, uh, Jason, this was something that you brought up about Baker County as when this all started, where there was no confirmed cases in Baker County. And over in Morrow County, they still only have 12 confirmed cases. I think it's going on about 10 days or so now without any new confirmed cases either. And when speaking with uh, Mr. DeLoe over there, you know, he said from his perspective and, you know, from the state level, obviously the numbers aren't aren't comparable to some other states across the country, but we still do have thousands of people that have uh, been confirmed with this virus, uh, about 150 who have died as well. But he said from his perspective, this hasn't risen to the level of public health crisis. And in Morrow County, they only have 12 confirmed cases. There aren't any hospitalizations. Now, that's that's kind of where this gets complicated, as I think it has in every issue that's brought up, been brought up with COVID-19 is you have local areas where you're not seeing evidence of a deadly outbreak, but we have evidence from other places where it clearly has uh, been deadly and has really been contagious. And we've seen religious gatherings be a place where it can spread. So it's it's kind of this this constant conflict that's been brought up, I think, throughout this this pandemic where you have local local places, especially here in 
rural Eastern Oregon where they don't have large amount of cases. A lot of these gatherings are pretty small at churches anyways. Um, but beside all that, a lot of the churches still out here have, have adapted. I mean, over at the Hefner Christian Church, Mr. Lowe said they've been, they had started live streaming their services back in December before any of this began and really just because they wanted to provide more access to their services. So it's, I, I mean, it's a, in that regard, it's, it's interesting still to see someone like uh, DeLoe and over there in, in Hefner who didn't they, he opposed what's going on with the state stepping in and, and restricting these gatherings uh, for churches, but also was able to adjust and, and wasn't necessarily so opposed that he felt the need to, to jump on board with a lawsuit or anything like that. Yeah, I think Kathy and Alex have both brought up a, a really interesting uh, difference between the, the strictly legal aspects of this case, and of course it is obviously a lawsuit, and then more, I guess what you might call the social aspects, because I think the legal the legal issues are pretty straightforward at this point, again, centering on those you know, differing, differing interpretations of those two state laws. But on the other side, the question is, well, if the the preliminary injunction is reinstated, for instance, and if the governor's executive orders, particularly the ones limiting gatherings to 25 people, would be set aside, what does that mean then for for churches in particular, and how would they react? The attorney for a group of interveners in the case, Kevin Mannix, a former uh, state legislator, has been, he has emphasized uh, in every conversation I've had with him and, and also many of his uh, you know, press releases and other public statements that even if essentially the plaintiffs prevail and the executive orders are, are set aside, the precautions related to the pan pandemic you know, he's he's recommending, in effect, that those, you know, continue to be, uh, you know, followed, you know, that they're not really questioning the 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 medical wisdom, I guess, of of these restrictions. Rather, they're questioning specifically whether the, you know, the governor has has exceeded her legal authority or not. And again, those are those are quite different questions. And, and it's interesting how in each church, of course, given you know, their, the size of their congregation and the size of their church and a lot of other factors um, all play into this. Yeah, I mean, with the with the legal uh, authority aspect of it, too, I, I mean, I think it's it, it really has. I mean, as I, I was kind of talking about with how it's propping up all across the country and it it, it keeps getting pushed to higher levels as, as well. I mean, it's I, I think, again, this is just a this is a situation where freedoms and the, the bill of rights are going to be probably tested and, and put mm -hmm. to more challenges than we're, than we usually see just because it is a crisis, a, a mass event of some kind. So I think that's just, it's, I, I'm going to be really intrigued to see how it progresses at the legal stage here from how it gets looped in with the rest of these lawsuits propping up around the country and what will eventually happen and whether it will be connected to those, because as you've kind of brought up, Jason, I mean, it is explicitly directed at these, uh, at these state laws and uh, exactly how the governor has reacted 
or uh, what power she has used. Yeah, and, and then there's the whole twist of you know President Trump jumping into the fray and and classifying churches as essential and saying that governors need to uh, open them up. Yeah, immediately. I, so far, it seems like uh, states are sort of ignoring that, but it's, it'd be interesting to see how how that plays out too. And I think we've seen. With this issue, uh, again, with, as we have with a lot during this, all the, the kind of how it all gets mangled up between the different levels of government as, mm-hmm. as well. When you have Trump stepping in and, and providing statements on what he feels churches should do and deeming them essential, even though legally there's no authority for what that necessarily mm-hmm. does. And this is actually something that mm-hmm. in my conversation with uh, uh, Ray Delo over in Hepner, what he he brought up was one of his concerns with the pandemic, with this issue limiting uh, gatherings of churches and just the information that he's been able to, to get on the subject to begin with is inconsistency and the inconsistency from state government to the federal government. And I was actually talking on the phone with him when uh, I first saw the report that Trump had issued a statement deeming church is essential. And that's when he brought up the fact that, you know, from a, a federal level, it, you know, they're saying one thing, the state's saying something different. Local governments then are also stepping in in some degree. Morrow County hasn't, but Umatilla County also, they did mention churches in their reopening plans and they had it in there that they're able to, to meet as long as they abide by the state standard. Right? It says that they should follow those state guidelines, but that's, again, it's just, you're getting all these different kind of voices on the issue. And for some of the the local people involved in the issue that are actually having to face it and figure out solutions for Mm -hmm. it are questioning who should I be listening to? What really is the, the right way to deal with this? And I, I think that's why we, you get a lot of different perspectives and opinions on it. And this, you know, this debate has centered largely around churches and religion. Not surprisingly, given the the, the plaintiffs uh, are largely churches. However, the you know the potential ramifications of the preliminary injunction issue, which is before this the Supreme Court, extend well beyond religion because the the injunction that Judge Shirkliff issued you know, for the several hours that it was technically in effect, it threw out all of the governor's executive orders issued since March. So in theory, that would have, that could affect businesses. It could affect uh, other types of gatherings, non, non-church related gatherings. And so if that injunction were to be reinstated, it would create an a really confusing situation, I think, for a lot of people outside of, of churches, because you'd have businesses perhaps wondering, well, am I no longer, you know, under the, uh, do I have to comply with the occupancy guidelines and social distancing and, and all these things that are in the current executive orders, even for counties, which is most of Oregon's counties that are in phase one, and then you have people planning summer events and that may be limited because of the, the size of gatherings. We're now thinking, well, technically I'm not 
under those restrictions anymore. And then it, you have the issue you mentioned of sort of local government. Then the question is, what authority do counties have to institute their own restrictions based on public health emergencies? Obviously, at this point, cities and counties have largely just gone, you know, followed what the state has done. Uh, but counties, each county's uh, you know, ordinances differ on that uh, in terms of what their authority is. So it, it could create a, a lot of, of additional questions and issues if the preliminary injunction were reinstated. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at especially the decision Morrow County had already decided uh, that they had made weeks ago when this issue was first propping up is they didn't want to get involved. But yeah, as soon as you remove the state's power, that was kind of that a lot of these governments locally were falling back on to put these restrictions in place. I I mean, I think it would be really hard if all of a sudden you're asking over there in Morrow County here in Umatilla County as well. I think a lot of these smaller counties in Eastern Oregon, where all of a sudden the commissioners and public health directors would be asked to, they would have to weigh in and and try to make what they felt is the right decision for their communities. And you're going to get more inconsistencies across the board with that. You're going plus not even to mention then the potential public health issues that that could promote present that even if there is changes for a couple of hours and you get, people congregating together. What does that mean? I mean, it's, yeah, I think there's a lot of things that could to come away from it. And, you know, so much of, I think this issue plays at a lot of what's just been highlighted throughout this pandemic as well, where anybody that, that is pushing back on some of these orders, and I think you're seeing it more, I guess, clearly, evidently, and with some of these reopening rallies. I mean, we were talking before we started recording this about one that's happening in Hermiston this weekend, and it's happening really all over the state, all over the country. And it's, it, it's this pushing back of, uh, of wanting to really, really relieve all of these restrictions. And that's what I, I, I find really interesting that this lawsuit, even though it really is about churches and, uh, their gatherings and and people wishing to worship at least that's that's front and center what you bring up jason i think is so important about it that if if rulings were to go one way that it would pose a lot of questions and a lot of issues for for local governments to have to kind of figure out and i i think it it's very connected to what we're seeing start to rise up throughout the state a little bit among groups of wanting yeah, the, all those restrictions to go away um, I I was just noting noticing the other day that there was this um, another lawsuit that had, had happened in California that maybe uh, would be, serve a little precedent. And um, evidently, a, f- a federal judge ruled this month that state and local state-owned orders were a valid exercise of emergency police power, and they didn't violate, um, according to the court, the church's constitutional rights, and. Um, the, a judge in that case noted that the U.S. Supreme Court, like more than a century ago, upheld the government's right to exercise police powers to promote safety um, during a public health crisis. And that, I thought that was super interesting. But, you know, there's so many different layers to this onion. Um, uh, I, I mean, for 
a lot of folks that I talk to, this is, I mean, all that stuff out there is just noise. And they know that their virtual church service is not as nearly as satisfying as just going to church. It just doesn't really do it for them. And I sort of feel that way with my own virtual church service that I listen to. It's not, well, to quote uh, Aaron Swenson from Cornerstone Fellowship, um, he said, you know, you can't do it online. Uh, we need a real church, not a virtual church. And he worries about isolation and, and some of the mental health effects of that, you know, not being able to come in contact with some of the most important people in your life and your circle of believers. So, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of layers. All right. Well, I, as you mentioned, there are a lot of layers to this onion and one that certainly is not anywhere close to, to being resolved. Uh, but we'll, we'll put a pin in it right there and uh, move on. I want to thank uh, everybody for listening. I want to thank Alex Castle, Kathy Aney, and Baker City Herald editor Jason Jacoby for joining us on In the Newsroom. I'm Andrew Cutler, and we will talk to you next time.